Hey, welcome everyone to another episode of the Going VC podcast. I'm JJ. And I'm Rachel, and we're super excited to bring you all this episode. As a quick reminder, our goal of this podcast, as always, is to discuss a variety of topics as it relates to launching or accelerating your BC career. Before we begin, I want to give a heads up to our listeners. This episode was recorded late last year, so some of the references are contemporaneous to fall of 2021. So Rachel, can you give us a quick rundown of what the listeners can expect today? Yeah, so our guest today is Diana Shea, head of product and co-founder of Correlated, the first product-led revenue platform. Diana talks about her experience working as a junior VC at the start of her career and the perspective it gave her, her thought process on the pros and cons of working in VC, and why she ultimately left the industry to become an operator and founder. Yeah, Diana, I thought, brought a really interesting and different perspective to the show, having started her career in investing before later transitioning to becoming a founder, which I think is the opposite of what most of our guests' career paths have been. I think this is an episode our listeners will really enjoy. And with that out of the way, let's get started. Thank you so much, Diana, for joining us today on the podcast. Really excited for the conversation that we've got planned. So Rachel and I normally start these things off by just hearing a little bit about our guest's origin story. So we'd love it if you just kind of introduce yourself to the audience. I know right now you're a co-founder and head of product at Correlated. And if you just give the audience kind of a bit of the backstory on, on how you got there. I would say that I, when I first started out in college, I was very ambitious. So I wouldn't say that I was interested at all in startups necessarily. I think right when I was graduating, the financial crisis had just happened. So I like did a little bit of Googling. What do the most aggressive competitive people do after college? And it was investment banking. <laughs> so I ended up doing investment banking. I had gone to MIT. So I decided that I wanted to do something that was tech oriented. And so I did tech investment banking in New York. I did that for a year and absolutely hated it. And I would say that I actually kind of liked the job. Like the Excel was kind of fun. It was something that I actually kind of enjoyed. But I think the biggest problem I had with investment banking was the culture and how there was just this really not supportive culture for some of the more junior people. So I decided that I didn't want to stay and actually quit early. <laughs> and that caused a lot of drama. But I ended up going over to a venture capital firm that was focused on enterprise tech, which is kind of what I had done when I was in investment banking. So everything was kind of related. It was a transition that was really natural. A lot of venture capital firms back then would recruit people straight out of banking. So that's how I got my first job in venture capital and in investing. And that was super fun. I think what I love the most about venture capital is meeting with founders and really just hearing people who are experts in their space talk to you about what they're working on. But what I realized in venture is that in order to be a super successful venture capital associate, you also have to be really, really good at sales and also really, really good at kind of that networking piece. And for me, like, I think it's important and I think it's a skill that you want to do, but I didn't want to do it all the time. And I wanted to get closer to founders and work closer with startups. So that's really where I decided that I was going to try to find an operating role. In fact, it was actually really difficult to find an operating role. A lot of startups they're not looking for someone with a traditional business background. So when I had actually quit Morgan Stanley, I had actually looked at joining DoorDash as a biz ops analyst and they did not want me. So it's really interesting how there's almost a, an aversion in startups to taking someone who just has a pure business background, especially in the very, very beginning. 
So what I did was in venture, I met Spencer, who's the CEO of Cockroach, and I just thought they were a really interesting company. I wanted to move back to New York and Spencer took a chance on me. And that's really how I ended up going back into the startup worlds. And since then, I've just been doing products. So I was the first product manager at Cockroach Labs. And then I moved on to Timescale, which is another open source database and did the first product management stint again there and then decided to start my own thing. Nice, nice. That's really interesting. You know, the thing you just talked about is that aversion that startups have to people with, you know, traditional roles, finance roles, that sort of thing. So obviously, you have this connection you mentioned, and this is how you're kind of able to make that jump there. But I would love it if you just dive into that a little more, you know, for anyone in our audience who is listening, who I guess wants to leave TMT and, and go work in <laughs> an operating role. Yeah, I think I would say that a lot of the aversion comes from the fact that people who come from kind of a large corporate background are not as scrappy when it comes to startups. At startups, there's no process. No one has time to do documents, to build Excel models, make PowerPoints. And in fact, a lot of times, if you build a PowerPoint, people think you're kind of wasting their time. <laughs> so it's almost like a culture clash, I think, which is why there's a little bit of an aversion. I think the other thing is that sometimes I've definitely seen people coming from a corporate background have a lot of trouble actually adjusting to the startup life. And it goes back again to in the corporate world, it's all about presenting yourself and being prepared, writing documents. But at startups, it's all about execution. So I think just that culture clash is probably the main reason why a lot of startups probably don't necessarily look to hire out of the banking program. That makes sense. That makes sense. Cool. So now I would love to turn it over to Rachel. I know she has some questions about your operator roles and, and in particular about product-led growth. So Rachel, take it away here. Yeah, thanks, JJ. And Diana, and the rundown you gave on your background, I think there's there's a lot of interesting areas we can dive into there. But would love to talk a bit about what you do in your role as co-founder and head of product at Correlated. And also, if you could tell everybody if they're not sure about it or, or haven't heard the term, what product-led growth is. So Correlated is focused on basically building a platform for revenue teams to find conversion and expansion opportunities. And the way that we do it is we combine a lot of data from CRMs, from your data warehouse, all of this customer data and create this unified view. You can actually build automation on top of kind of all this data. So you could kind of imagine us as an intelligent operating system or control panel where you can automate things if you want to. You can notify a salesperson to reach out if you want to. And all of this is based off of this customer data that we're collecting. That's what Correlated does. The main reason why we started the company is because there's been this huge trend towards product-led growth. And I'd say it's not even the beginning of the trend where we're deep into the trenches of product-led growth. And what product-led growth really is, is it is all of the businesses who have a go-to-market that is largely product-led. So think Slack, things like Asana, you go in, you log in, you can try the product, you don't have to pay. And basically the product sells itself. And that's really what a lot of people term as product-led growth. So the biggest difference between product-led growth sales and enterprise sales is that product-led growth just has a lot of product information about what users are doing. So you can use that to really target users better. So that's kind of where Correlated fits in. In terms of what I do in my role, I laugh about it a lot, but I think founders a lot of times just end up filling in gaps that you know, team members might not have the expertise to do or don't have the time to do. So a lot of the work that I do is around gap filling. But then, of course, I also function as a product person. So planning the roadmap, talking to customers, making sure they're successful and doing all of that is also part of my responsibilities. 
Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. So throughout your career so far, you've you've had some really interesting roles. You talked about how you spent some time in corporate investment banking and found that it really wasn't for you. And now you've had been able to sit on both sides of the table in terms of being a founder and an investor. And you also mentioned that in your time and working as an associate in enterprise in VC, that you found that you have to be really good at sales and networking, but that wasn't something that you wanted to do full time. So would love to dive a little bit into your transition from being a VC to a startup operator. If you want to dive into a little more on like, you know, why you decided to make that transition and just kind of what that experience was like when you first made the transition. To kind of add on how I was thinking about the transition, I think venture capital actually, it's very dependent on what firm you go to. So some firms are a little bit larger. They'll have this associate role where the associate, you don't have check writing power, but you'll go out and basically try to find interesting deals that your partner is interested in. So that's larger firms. I think some of the smaller firms, they might not have associates or you tend to work a lot closer with partners. So I think a lot of times the experience you have in VC is very dependent on the firm you go to. I'd say that the reason why I went into operating, first of all, was I've actually kind of always wanted to kind of work at a startup and eventually found something. So for me, it made sense to do it. And the second thing is I also think that there are kind of two paths to kind of move up and venture. One is you grind it out, you go associate, principal, VP, whatever, partner, whatever they call people these days, junior partner, <laughs> or you kind of go to a startup, you do really well. And then kind of the sky's the limit, right? In terms of what you can do. And maybe some people decide to go back to VC, some people don't. And that's kind of what I was thinking. I, I knew I wanted to try to found something. I knew I didn't want to do that kind of ladder climbing in venture. So that's kind of why I left. I guess you had asked about what it was like to make that transition. The biggest realization I had within three months, maybe even less, like one month of working at Cockroach was as a VC, I had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. The things that I was telling some of these founders was just rooted in not having done it before. So the minute you started a startup, you realize there's 10,000 things to do. There are all these best practices that you know you're supposed to do, but none of them actually matter because you just have to get things out. And also a lot of these metrics that VCs like to talk about, sometimes the company is just so early that these metrics don't even exist. So you can't use those metrics to kind of guide your processes and kind of think through things. So I, I think that was the hardest transition for me, kind of just having to start from zero and basically learn a completely new job. So that was, that was definitely very different. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. And I know you've mentioned in the past, kind of touching on that realization of just how different being a VC is compared to working at a startup and, and growing really quickly. Do you have anything you'd like to share about things that you think VCs say that are sometimes wrong or that they just don't have perspective on, whether, you know, things that you've heard in raising venture capital for Correlated or even things that you have said in your time as a VC that you kind of look back on and, and cringe now? Yeah. There are so many things that I probably said that were very wrong. And, you know, I'm very thankful that a lot of the founders that I talked to, they would never call me out on it, which I think is pretty amazing. I guess when people say things to us, we don't necessarily call things out either. But I think one of the most common mistakes I think VCs make is pretending to understand the market better than they do. So a lot of times you'll be talking to them about kind of market trends and you'll have to educate them a little bit. And the problem with that is that when you're trying to like get a founder to like you and you don't know enough about the space, 
I think a lot of VCs end up coming off very apprehensive or skeptical about what you're working on. And I think that's just a really, it's a really hard place for a founder to work with the VC when they just don't have that understanding of the market. So I actually find that what's more effective when you're a VC talking to a founder is just actually potentially, if you don't know the space, maybe you do know the space really well and you can talk about it and that's totally fine. But if you don't know the space really well, just letting the founder actually educate you on the space versus the other way around, because then you just kind of just had a bad meeting, I would say. Probably something that advice that I've given to people that was pretty wrong is stuff the first time you hire a salesperson, you want to hire two salespeople because you want to see which one worked better and which one didn't. I think sometimes that's difficult because, you know, some startups just don't have money to hire two salespeople. Maybe some other things are when people ask you for like strategy on how to price things. I've told people like, oh, you should price by usage. And a lot of times like doesn't make sense for them to price on usage. One of the most common things we've discovered is as a startup in the first one year, there's no way you have any of the infrastructure to price on usage. So a VC telling, you know, a seed startup to price on usage is just doesn't account for the fact that product is really hard to build. Probably just if I were to classify things that VCs say that make me laugh, it's just when they think things can happen in five days when it really takes a year or two. Yeah, that's really funny. JJ, any any other questions you have in terms of advice from a founder in terms of questions that you can ask and like a pitch meeting or anything like that. I know you actively invest as well. So this might be something top of mind for you. <laughs> well, I mean, to be honest, now I'm wondering about all the cringy things I've said. <laughs> so one question I'd be really curious on, Diana, you've got experience, you know, originally as an investor, first in investment banking and TMT and, and, and then later at a venture fund. And now as an operator, and since your time as an investor, the VC landscape has totally changed. You know, it's it's becoming really hyper competitive. Valuations are wild. But one of the other things, you know, I think that it has kind of evolved a little bit, particularly with junior investors, is this importance of, of social selling. Or maybe it's not as important as people think, but they're on Twitter all the time. They're doing all this sort of personal brand building. And I guess at the end of the day, we all only have 24 hours. Do you think from sort of your perspective as an investor and sort of now as a founder, do you think all this sort of social selling and, and sort of personal brand building is something that's beneficial? Like, you know, when you guys are going out to raise, did you look at the content of your investors or that sort of stuff? Or do you think it's maybe less useful than people think? This is a very loaded topic, right? Because <laughs> actually when I was in venture, I did social selling too. I would write blog posts about like, what should your pitch deck look like? What are some metrics you want to include in your pitch deck? How do you talk to an investor? And people would come back and actually tell me, oh, that was really helpful. I read it. The thing is like, did that actually help me win a deal? I can't attribute winning a deal to my social selling. Now, granted, I don't really think I invested as much time into it as people do these days because back then everyone just had a blog you know it was it wasn't like what we do now i think social selling is super important so at correlated we actually do a lot of social selling we're on linkedin all the time we're writing blog posts so i think it's key and it's really important and breezy who's our head of growth is like continuously telling me to write more linkedin posts my controversial opinion is that there's a lot of competition in vc right now and there's a lot of noise but at the end of the day for a founder, what I care about when I work with a VC is being able to establish and have a, a level of trust where you know you can ask them the tough questions, you know 
They're not going to screw you. We all, we've all heard like, you know, the horror stories. And I think that level of trust is not something you build through social selling. I think social selling is a good way to build top of funnel, have people hear about you. But at the end of the day, you have to put in the work after that social selling to actually create a real relationship with the people that you're working with. So I'd say social selling, it's a company like that's top of funnel. But at the end of the day, you got to convert and nurture. That makes sense. And I don't think that's too controversial a viewpoint. Maybe what's controversial is that right now money is so cheap. And I think it almost dilutes what actually makes a VC great. I think some of the best VCs that you know I have a lot of respect for are people who they might not necessarily have been operators, but they've seen so many companies go through so many different situations that they always have great advice about how to think about different problems, how to tackle different business challenges. Those are the types of VCs that I think are super valuable. And what's really interesting is not that many of them are actually as social selling as some other types. So I just think there are like a lot of different ways that you can be successful as a VC. And I think social selling is great, but I also think that there are other ways to do it and you don't have to necessarily social sell because at the end of the day, I'm not looking at content that VCs are pushing out. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like I'll, I'll let go of someone I know or someone who someone introduced them to us or someone has good things to say about them. We don't necessarily read a piece of content and decide that this is the one we're going to go with. Right. So expanding on sort of one thing you just said there that, you know, some of the investors that you have appreciated the most, even if they haven't been operators, they've just seen the movie so many times that they're able to kind of give insightful, you know, feedback and sort of share experience there. On the flip side there, do you think your time as an investor has, has kind of given you some interesting vantage points or, or sort of an interesting lens to look at your role now as an operator? Like we were discussing a few minutes ago, that transition is not really that common. Do you think your time as an investor has sort of given you an interesting lens there? I think it absolutely has. I think the biggest thing about being a VC or the biggest thing you can learn while you're in VC is how to be strategic. So you're seeing all these companies and you're thinking about what does their go-to-market make sense? Does their market size make sense? Does their product make sense? And you're thinking about all these different avenues about the company that are very, very, very high level. And in some cases, I actually think it's an experience that it's very hard to get if you just go to a startup. Like if you started a startup, maybe you're right out of college, you'll, you'll go into a BDR or like an associate PM role. Those people do not actually see the strategic objectives of the company, right? So I think the VCs, they get to practice the strategic thinking across a lot of different companies and kind of learn that skill. So for me, I actually think that I certainly haven't had the fastest rocket ship career progression, but I also think it's been potentially a lot faster than some other people might expect based on my years of experience, just because when you come in, maybe you've never done the product marketing or product management role, but you come in with this ability to think a little bit more high level and a little bit more strategically. And I think that just positions you really well to kind of grow really quickly and kind of learn the operational skills, but also be able to kind of think about things in a higher level. That makes a lot of sense there. I guess in that sense, it's almost kind of giving you the experience of joining a really early stage company where you're still get to, you know, even as a junior person, right, if it's a six person team, you're still taking on a lot of roles there. Yeah, I hands down think joining an early stage company early on is one of the best things. Like it's one of the best things you can do, not just because like you learn a lot, but it's just also really fun. And you make really close connections with everyone there. You do everything. So throughout my experience at Cockroach and Timescale and now here, I've done product marketing, product management. I've done sales. <laughs> I do customer success. We do business analytics stuff because there's no business analyst to help people in numbers. I've even sometimes fixed bugs, very simple bugs. So you do 
everything, absolutely everything. And it's really fun. And I would highly recommend anybody do it. The one downside actually that I discovered is when I was at Cockroach, I had never been a product manager, but I kind of grew into product management role just naturally because I knew I wanted to do that. So I tried really hard to kind of prove myself. But what I realized is when you don't have someone who's done it before to teach you, you never are able to calibrate whether or not what you're doing is right. So once Nate, who's now, I think he's the CPO, now he's super high up at Cockroach. Once he came in, he was able to teach me, oh, when you are doing a product feature, here are the steps that you want to do in order to make sure everyone's aligned. Here's the right process. And I think having someone teach you that is also very valuable. So there's always positives and negatives, right? To when you join a company and who's teaching you and all that. That makes sense. And that actually kind of relates to something that's come up in a lot of these conversations is that as a junior person at a VC firm, it's just really hard to get feedback sometimes. You know, you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, if you're at a smaller firm, you're working closely with the partners, you know, maybe that dynamic is a little different. But if you're at a larger organization, you know, sort of a more formal structure, you're an associate and you're going out and you're trying to find interesting deals and, and you're not really involved in that sort of check writing process. And then, of course, you know, even if it's an interesting deal that you source, you've got to wait, you know, four or five five, six, seven years to sort of figure out how things pan out. We'll love to just kind of hear a little more about how your experience with that was while you're working and investing. I actually felt that I learned a lot from my partners. They were very, I think, generous with their knowledge and how they thought about things. I think actually the main reason why I, well, so I was at Norwest, I joined Norwest was that I had met everyone and gotten coffee with them and they were all just really wonderful people. So for me, like, not staying in venture, I don't think had anything to do necessarily with mentorship. It just had to do with what I wanted to do at that time and kind of the experience I wanted to bring. The other thing that was interesting about Norwest is that actually all the partners had operating experience. So for them, they really cared about getting operating experience and how important that was. So I think that also very much factored into why, like, you know, I decided to go into the operating space. In terms of kind of just generally Being a venture associate has a lot of churn. So a lot of people come in, they'll be a venture associate, and then you'll find out two years later, they're doing something completely different. And I think part of the reason is exactly that, that the measure of whether or not you're a good venture associate is very intangible. Maybe you brought in a good company, but maybe you lucked out or that was your college roommate's best friend. You know, it's like super unclear why like you are good as an investor. So I think at the end of the day, if I were to go back and do venture again, I I really think it's about finding the right mentor and making sure that whoever you're working with is someone that you really want to learn from. Because otherwise, it's just going to be kind of a slog, I think, to just be an associate and try to find deals. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think that's really great advice. And kind of along those same lines, say that somebody that's kind of just getting their career started, or maybe they're thinking about transitioning careers and thinking between working for a startup or trying to go into VC, what advice would you give that person in terms of how to evaluate those two career paths? I think my biggest advice is that actually the two, I know it's so interesting to me that people are often evaluating those two, but the two are incredibly different, super different. What I do on a day-to-day basis is I, in fact, my mom has told me that I look different now because I dress differently. I have a different lifestyle. I work different hours. So she's like, you legit like look a different person. Really what it comes down to is you should do venture for two reasons. One is you really, really, really want to be a venture capitalist. Like you you don't want to do anything else. You just want to be a venture capitalist. You're going to find any way to be a venture capitalist. That's one thing. 
The second thing is you kind of want to use venture capital as like a stepping stone to find the right startup to join. And one of the things I, I remember when I was quitting to leave Cockroach, a lot of my friends who were in venture were like, oh, this is a really big change for you. Like, are you sure you want to do it? And I, I remember telling them the longer I stay in venture, the harder it's going to be to leave because venture pays super well. It's very cush. I mean, you're working hard, but like the pay cut I took to join a startup was like pretty big. So the longer you stay in venture, the harder it is to leave. So I just think that like, if you choose to go into venture, you either want to know, you really want to do it. You're going to fight really hard and kind of really pound the pavement to get there, or you're doing it as a way to kind of find a good startup to join. Because I, I, I think I benefited a lot from being able to see which startups, you know, I thought were interesting and, you know, spending basically all my time figuring out which startups are cool. On the startup side, I think the personality type that does really well on the startup side are people who to get things done. So if you, you like consider yourself an executor, you like to build things, I think startups are the place to be because you will never feel like you're really building something when you're in venture. That's great advice. And I think a lot of people don't realize the point you made that the two career paths are, are very different, even though people do tend to shift around, whether being a, a VC kind of first and then moving to operations, an operator like you or vice versa. And another kind of follow on question here that I'm just curious about, because I don't know if this is like a hotly debated topic, but I see there's a lot of differing opinions on if you subscribe to the belief that VC should be an operator first. Do you think that kind of the best VCs or, or the VCs that you have experience working with are better because of their operating backgrounds? I don't think you need to be an operator to be a good VC. The reason why I say this is because operating skills in the market changes very, very, very rapidly. So maybe you operated five years ago and you start now, you wouldn't know the tech stack that people are using anymore. So the operating skills get out of date quickly. So like if you were to just like expect your VC to give you tactical advice about what to do, I just don't think they'd be able to. The one benefit that I think operating experience does give VCs is just empathy for the founder situation. It's a lot of work. And I I think if you haven't done it before, it's really easy. Like we talked about this a little bit earlier. It's really easy to just think that things can happen when it's actually just kind of impossible for it to happen in that way, in that sequence and at that speed. The reason why I think you don't really need operating experience is there are just so many examples of really great investors who haven't necessarily operated. They're just really smart about providing a different kind of value. So sometimes a lot of VCs like to talk about value add and I think VCs can be value-add, but at the end of the day, the people doing the actual work and actually pushing things through, it's always going to be the founders and the team. No matter how much value-add they give you, they can't change how you execute things. So in terms of VC value-add, if you don't have operating experience, something that I find really helpful from like VC associates or principals is like, what is the current equity comp range right now? Or what are the various marketing tools that all of your people are using? What is the HR platform that I should use? Some of these like just knowledge that you can combine across a lot of different companies. Even I'm thinking about usage pricing. Do you have a company that did that? And can they tell me the positives and negatives? So I think that's the value add versus necessarily needing to give tactical advice. Got it. Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting point about value add. And JJ and I have talked about this with prior podcast guests around how their firms provide value add since... VC's dollars are almost seen as a commodity today. So I think that's a really interesting point that you just made. JJ, any other follow-on questions here before we kind of transition to other topics? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess one question I'd love to hear is, can you see yourself going back to being an investor? 
Or is it something, you know, you enjoyed it, got the experience out of it, but just love that operator role? I think about this all the time. I actually think I would go back, <laughs> but I would, I think I would never go back in the associate role, mostly because I would probably at this point be 10 years older than everybody who's an associate, <laughs> but also because what I love most about venture is meeting founders and really understanding how they're working through things and trying to provide help when you can. But like, I think you really only get to do that at higher levels of venture. So if I were to go back, I think I would definitely consider going back. I mean, obviously not right now, but it would be more to like into a role where I think I would be able to actually work directly with companies. So like in a more of a check writing role versus going out there and trying to find companies and basically being a BDR. So yeah, I guess we can move into some more kind of fun questions that JJ and I always like to ask guests. But yeah, Diana, so is there anything that gets you really excited moving into the new year? I know your your head's down working on correlated. So it could be something, you know, related to that or any other like industries or trends that you're really looking forward to digging into. I think what I'm really excited about is we're gonna hire someone to help me do some of this customer success stuff. And then I will be able to not work at 11 p.m. That, <laughs> I think that's my most immediate excitement. We are also going to be working on more analytics stuff, which I find always really cool. And, you know, I think probably on a macro trend, what I'm most excited about is this is going to sound really morbid, but seeing some of this bubbly venture environment maybe deflate a little bit because I. I just like, there have been just so many companies that have raised money these days on no traction. And I just don't know how long that can last. So I'm really excited to see what's going to happen next year to all of these companies who have raised a lot of money. Yeah, that definitely sounds very exciting to not be able to work until 11 p.m. And I'm also with you on, you know, just seeing where the venture landscape goes and, you know, all of these huge rounds that have been raised. I think that that will be something really interesting to keep a pulse on. And in terms of correlated for anybody who's listening, whether a founder or maybe somebody interested in working for correlated, I know that you are currently hiring anything you like to share in terms of, you know, how they can learn more about the company or get in touch. Oh yeah. Well, we're super active on LinkedIn. So if you follow us on LinkedIn, you'll like see a bunch of blog posts. I, we also do, this is very awkward, but we also do LinkedIn videos. So I'll find some random fun place to do videos uh, and talk about PLG sales. So I think that's the best way to get in touch. I'd say that we were open to a lot of different kind of profiles. So if someone just wants to like see what it is like to work at a startup and work hard and learn new things, that's kind of like the personality and the background and culture that we like to encourage. So everyone in our company is very collaborative. They work across a lot of different departments and we have a lot of room for people to grow. So I'd say like, it doesn't really matter what your background is as long as you're excited. That's awesome. And also LinkedIn videos. I don't know if I've seen too many of those. So that's kind of fun. We'll have to check some of them out. Are you guys on TikTok as well, though? Well, that's why it's so embarrassing, because it's almost like, why are you doing videos on LinkedIn? But people engage, <laughs> like get really excited about them. Literally, people will LinkedIn connect with me and be like, Diana, I loved your foliage video. Or, oh, Diana, that is such a cool idea to talk about Dutch ovens. It's very strange. So I have to ask now, what was the foliage video in the Dutch oven video? The foliage video was just me walking around like a forest in Vermont talking about how Sales Loft is great. 
<laughs> and then it's like a very nerdy video. And the other video, oh, the Dutch oven one was, I think, two use cases for a PLG CRM and two use cases for a Dutch oven. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give the listeners a bit of a preview? You know, what was one use case for a Dutch oven and for a PLG CRM? I'm trying to remember what I said about the, I think PLG CRM, the two use cases are drive conversion and expansion. So conversion expansion, two use cases. And for Dutch ovens, I was making chili for like football Sunday or something. So it's searing beef and then braising it. (laughs) Nice, nice. And I'm going to add a third one for the Dutch oven. They're fantastic for making no need bread. Yes, sourdough. It's another good one. (laughs) I love it. We'll we'll have to include both of those videos in the show notes for everyone <laughs> yeah no it's 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 embarrassing it's pretty embarrassing the main reason why we're not on tiktok is because we're selling into like sales and by then they're not on tiktok well they're a little bit in the millennial linkedin social group so yeah that's why we're not on tiktok gotcha so final two questions here one is actually to my co-host rachel uh, what is one use case for a dutch oven on your end That is a great question. I have never used one. So when you all were talking about sourdough bread, I thought in the back of my mind, I'm going to have to try this out because this sounds fun. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. Well, Rachel will report back listeners on a future episode as to how her Dutch oven bread making adventure goes. And final question for Diana here. What is your favorite book that you've read over the last year or last few months and doesn't need to be tech related? Could be You know, it's so unfortunate. I have not finished a book in a very long time. I have a lot of books on my nightstand that I read one chapter in and I don't finish. The the (laughs) latest book that I finished was Dune and the movie just came out yesterday. So, I mean, I love that book. That book's amazing. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter for more venture capital research by visiting goingvc.com. And consider giving us a gift by rating us and sharing the podcast with a friend. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.